The Being an Engineer podcast is a repository for industry knowledge and a tool through which engineers learn about and connect with relevant companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. Enjoy the show. I tell our clients, I tell the people I work with, you know, I don't have an answer to this one, but uh, the 40 times in the past that this, pro- this type of problem has been presented to me, we figured out a pretty good solution to it. And I know we'll get through this one, too. Hello and welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Bill Atterbury, who holds both bachelor's and master's degrees in mechanical engineering and notably has worked at the same company, Battelle, for 40 years. Bill has spent his career designing and developing new products, largely in the medical device space. He is a Battelle Distinguished Inventor and in 2013 was named Battelle's Inventor of the Year. Bill, thank you so much for spending some time today. Thanks for having me. Well, what made you decide to become an engineer? This is a, yeah, always a tough question. Uh, you're going to get a lot of the same answers, I'm sure. Um, of course, when I was little, uh, I really loved to take things apart. Uh, and that was always enjoyable, found satisfaction from that. My, my dad kind of wanted me to step up to the next, next level and start putting things back together. So that was uh, <laughs> sure. that was obviously the next step, is to put them back together. And then... Uh, and then, of course, uh, starting to make them work. And so I, I really found a lot of enjoyment with that. Uh, you know, I started with bicycles, and as I got older, uh, you know, I started wrenching on cars, and, and that was pretty enjoyable to me. So I found I was good at that. I was good at visualizing mechanical things. I was pretty good at math. So it, it sort of made it a natural. Tell me a little bit more about visualizing mechanical things, because I think that's a skill that a lot of us have that is kind of hard for others to understand without without having that natural skill at what point did you realize that you're pretty good at just visualizing things in 3d well I, I don't know if i realized it myself but i realized it in others how somebody could look at something and uh spin it around in their head and make it match up to other parts and how things worked uh, a lot of the shapes we see now uh you know you know you got to visualize how it's going to look in your head and and i i began to appreciate how others could do that. And uh, I guess found that I had some of those skills as well. Tell me a little bit about what it was like, what it is like to have worked at the same company, Battelle, for for 40 years. That is pretty rare these days. I mean, for someone even to go for 10 or 20 years at the same company, let alone 40. Uh, It it is. uh, Yeah. And I guess there's a lot of reasons why you might want to switch. Uh, I have to give you a little bit of background on Battelle. Uh, maybe we'll do that in a minute, but uh, we get into a large variety of projects and products. And, uh, um, you know, we're kind of doing something different uh, all the time. So when one project ends and we pick up uh, another client in a different industry, maybe, or a different part of the medical industry, and it's a totally different uh, uh, product, totally different project. And oftentimes you get to work with different people. So it's always changing. And because of that, uh, I feel like our values over the years have kind of stayed aligned enough that I've, I've uh, enjoyed staying there. Um, you mentioned this just now, but maybe you can give us a little bit of background on Battelle. Yeah, um, I got to talk a little bit about the history and how it started uh, uh, to kind of understand who we are. Um, 
you know, it's not a very common name. Um, you know, not everybody knows who we are. Oh, yeah, they're down the street. I know they do a lot of good things, but I don't know what they do. Um, that kind of stuff. Uh, so it was started back in the 30s, uh, a little over 90 years ago, by a man by the name of Gordon Battelle. And uh, he and his family were, I'll call them uh, Central Ohio industrialists. They were involved in uh, mining and uh, uh, materials and uh, metallurgy and things like that. And uh, Gordon didn't have uh, any uh, heirs to give his wealth to. And so instead, he set up uh, in his will uh, funding of uh, an organization named after him, the Talmud Memorial Institute. That's where the memorial comes from. Uh, who's uh, kind of had a vision that uh, science and research advances can solve problems in business and society as a whole. And so in that, this organization then can fulfill that vision uh, of his. Uh, and so we're, it's really weird. We're not, you know, we're, we're a nonprofit company. Uh, we are, you know, we don't have any shareholders. Uh, we don't have any owners. Uh, we are simply set up by this will. And in addition to uh, continuing to stay sustainable and relevant in this world, uh, we also donate a fair amount of our uh, proceeds to charity. That is fascinating. Since Vitell doesn't have an owner, how how is top management structured? I mean, is it pretty typical for for any modern day organization? Uh, yes, I'd say so. Uh, you know, of course, we have a management structure just like everybody expects, and it goes all the way to the top. We have officers, and uh, they report to a board of directors, uh, which are folks hired to help guide uh, Patel in the future. And uh, uh, I guess it's nice that we don't have to answer to shareholders, but we still have to stay sustainable. So that means we have to stay, you know, basically um, relevant and uh, financially, we have to have revenue coming in to meet to meet our future needs and to donate to charities. Uh, now, did you say uh, Battelle is owned by, is it a trust? Uh, it, it is a trust that was created based on Gordon's will, yes. Okay, uh, how, how does that work, being owned by a trust? Does that, uh, I guess legally, what does that really mean? Um, our, our primary legal responsibility is to maintain the definition of the company as uh, uh, defined by the will. And does that go on in perpetuity? It does. And uh, the, the good thing about the will, the way it was written is, uh, you know, I told you that Gordon had uh, kind of interest in uh, mining and metallurgy and steel. And so the focus was kind of on the problems of the day, which uh, were a lot of metallurgy involved and things like that. But the will was set up uh, uh, in much more general terms where we could do research and development pretty much in any area of technological significance that uh, uh, we saw fit. So you're self-guided to a large extent? Uh, it, it, to some extent, <laughs> we are. Uh, uh, but uh, just like everybody, uh, we, we have to pay the bills and keep the doors open. And so, uh, you know, we tend to follow the needs of others who ask for work to be done and are willing to pay for it uh, so that uh, we can continue to, to do good work. Sure. Yeah, I think uh, Reed Harpum, who was on the show earlier, referred to Battelle as the uh, the largest not-for-profit that you have never heard of, <laughs> which yeah, sounded I, like a fun definition. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it, 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 we oftentimes don't get much credit for what we do. We work for clients, and uh, they take our products and market them, sell them, manufacture them. 
but our name oftentimes doesn't get mentioned as part of our contracts in many cases. Oh. In some cases, we can talk about some of the things we've done, and uh, and I'll bring up a few of those as examples along the way. Great. Well, what what benefits have you enjoyed from your career having worked for the same company for you know for so long that you think might not have uh, you might not have had uh, where you did you know job hop every four to six years like many of us do? Um, well, it, obviously, there's the standard benefits that any one company offers, um, uh, but uh, you know the stability is nice. Uh, you you kind of know what you're going to do in the general terms. You, you know where your office is. Uh, you don't have to but move. Uh, you get that after you know two, three, four years. You have that already. You're you're right. an order of magnitude beyond that. <laughs> uh, in my case, it's been the connections we've been able to make uh, uh, amongst, uh, for example, clients. Uh, getting to know uh, different clients, and they know our skills and are able to, um, you know, understand what we can do and what value we can provide to their organization. And uh, that kind of just kind of grows as other people move around to different companies and, and you get to do work on different projects for different people. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that you stayed at Battelle. At least one of the reasons you stayed there is because their values have continued to align with yours. And I wondered, have there ever been times during the past 40 years where you thought to yourself, you know, it's been a good ride here. It's been great, but maybe I ought to start exploring opportunities with, with other companies and Maybe you have explored, but ultimately you've stayed at Patel. Um, is is that because you've, to some degree anyway, been able to kind of create your your own reality to set up an environment that that works well for you, or has it really just worked out so well that uh, Patel aligns with you and and nothing has had to change? Um, it, it's it's uh, somewhere in between those two. Uh, when I first started at Patel, I, I worked in a different group. Uh, we were primarily doing uh, government contract research over there. And uh, while I found it uh, very technically challenging and, uh, and interesting, um, um, over time, I felt like I needed something more. And uh, at the time, we were setting up a medical products group that was focused primarily on medical products, so solely on medical products. And um, I got a chance to land there. And uh, that's been really enjoyable for me. It's, it's fulfilled one of my needs, and I think a lot of people have the same need, is you want to see the work you do benefit people. And I think the medical industry is probably one of the better places for that. Uh, and, and, you know, that just kind of keeps me going, getting to see people use stuff that I've done. Yeah, that's the sentiment that's been shared by several medical device engineers that we've had on the show. Well, um, uh, I feel like I keep bringing up 40 years, 40 years, 40 years. I'm not trying to make you feel old, I promise. Last time I'll bring that number up. But as a 40-year veteran engineer, one question I had for you was, how important is process in your daily role? What do you mean by process? I mean processes. In fact, before we started the podcast, one of your questions to me was, I'd like to understand your process. How do you do this? So we all have processes that we follow every day. Might be a process for uh, how to carry out a test procedure or how to write a document or or something like that. But um, how how important are processes to do you use them constantly? It could be just a checklist. Uh, what what place is that found in your deep engineering experience? Well, certainly in the medical device world, uh, processes are very important. Uh, we get towards the uh, later stages of a commercial launch of a product, 
And uh, for a medical product, that means following a lot of processes that uh, uh, obviously people will tell you about along the way. Um, you know, uh, uh, people talk about the design history file and all the thing that goes into that and uh, uh, the amount of paperwork and requirements, specifications and test reports. And ob obviously those are processes um, that are used. But I, I tend to look at a lot of uh, other ones that are maybe more informal and less written down, like, OK, how what's the process for doing a brainstorming session or what's the process for solving a challenging problems when when you don't really know what you've ever done it before and you don't know what to do and 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 those are the really the more informal ones that you kind of got to take on a case-by-case -case basis i actually am interested to hear what your process for brainstorming is this is something i've actually thought quite a bit about would you mind sharing that sure um so we, we typically will uh, obviously have an objective uh, to achieve out of our brainstorming and uh, it can be anywhere from we're trying to come up with new concept approaches to do something and it can be very undefined. It can be really blue sky stuff uh, down to um, we have a challenge with one specific design or one specific problem we're seeing. Let's come up with all the different ways we can uh, figure out on how to solve it and of course, as you know, brainstorming, the same kind of standard rules apply. Uh, you're trying to be uh, productive in a very collaborative environment. Uh, you're trying to build on other people's ideas. Uh, no idea is a bad idea. Um, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, and as far as that goes, it's, you know, the facilitator would usually, uh, you know, step up and create some sort of uh, problem statement, I'll call it, an objective statement to uh, define or bound uh, the nature of the problem that uh, we're trying to solve. And then everybody just goes for it. Um, I, I found that uh, having a bunch of different perspectives uh, from the people who are in the involved in the process uh, can be helpful. So a lot of times, different disciplines. You know, you'll have a double E a software, maybe somebody who's in a totally different uh, part of the organization provide a different perspective, and, and it'll give you insight to a problem that maybe you didn't have before, and that you can build on. Tell me a little bit more about the role of facilitator, because that's not a role that I always see in brainstorming sessions. Is that uh, formally set up at Patel to always have a facilitator as part of brainstorming? We almost always have somebody play a facilitator role, and it can vary from somebody who's uh, intimately involved in the problem, who has, let's say, the technical knowledge in the background. Maybe he or she is the person who is uh, interacting with the client and, and kind of understands you know, what our client wants to get out of the brainstorming session. Can go from there all the way up to, uh, I think you've probably been involved in some brainstormings where you bring in a, a facilitator and this person has no idea what, you know, the technical solutions you might be working towards, but their job is basically just to get the most out of the people. You know, they're trying to get the people to interact and and uh, figure out ways to generate as, as much uh, ideas that are pertinent to the problem as possible. So the facilitator, he or she is not necessarily as focused on coming up with his or her own ideas, but more so focused on managing the people in the room. Well, you bring them to the table to get their ideas. And so, yeah, you, you want to you farm as much as you can out of them. <laughs> now, maybe they also have very good ideas, which, which uh, you know, sometimes it's best to keep those to later. Sometimes it's best to interject them along the way. Uh, sometimes... Uh, the cylinder will help put up guardrails to keep us from driving off the road. 
Um, so it, it can be any one of those things. Nice. I read, oh, I can't remember the name of the book now. It was like five day prototype or something like that. Unfortunately, I can't remember the name of the author, but they had a really, um, a really interesting idea for how to do brainstorming. And we tried it recently and I thought it was, it was pretty effective. Everyone gets uh, a pad of like a sticky pad pad, but the, the larger ones, you know, like four, four by six size. And you all take, 10 minutes or 15 minutes in silence and just write down all your ideas. So no one is speaking. You're just in your own head writing down ideas and you generate whatever it is, you know, six, 10, 20 ideas on these individual uh, sticky notes. And then one by one, people go up onto like a big whiteboard or a wall and they start putting them up there and you start seeing patterns, right? And trends because uh, some of the ideas are the same between if you have three or four people brainstorming. And then you can start to group and, and um, organize these ideas into you know different paths. And then you can start uh, having conversations. Uh, and really that's the point at which people start talking is when we start looking at uh, all the different sticky notes that are stuck to the wall or the whiteboard and we say, oh, wh what do we think about this one? And, and maybe the person whose idea it was um, provides a little bit more context about that. But I thought it was a great way to get uh, a lot of ideas out really quickly without, um, you know, groupthink or any biases that might occur when one person says something. And maybe that person is kind of a leader in the group and people kind of flock to that idea and follow it. Uh, anyway, that was, I thought, a really effective method of, of brainstorming that we tried recently. Oh, I have to agree with you that that's a nice technique. Uh, yeah, if, if you have uh, one strong personality in the group and, and they dominate the meeting, it doesn't really draw ideas from maybe the quieter ones that are more creative yeah. in some cases. Um, but but yeah, having a little bit of independent time to think about it either before the meeting or the start of the meeting is a good thing. Um, another uh, technique we've also used is warm-up exercises. So you'll mm. give somebody a, it it's, may not be related to the um, topic that you're going to be working on at all, but a couple of minutes to do, here, come up with all the different ways you could do this. And it gets people in that mood of, I want a lot of ideas and I want to just pour out a bunch. There's going to be a bunch of bad ones here, but there might be a pearl in there too. That's a great idea. I had never heard of that before. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. Um, you, uh, you've, you've held several different roles uh, in your career. And at this point you are a team leader as well as an engineer. At, at what point in your career did you start to feel like you were ready to take on more of a leadership role? It, it kind of happened organically in a lot of ways. I mean, uh, obviously, you develop your technical skills in one area, and and uh, maybe some people like the idea of, of working kind of mm -hmm. as a lone ranger uh, all their lives in certain areas, and then you learn that um, you know you, you need you need a bigger team to pull a lot of a lot of these projects, you need people of different disciplines. You may not always have the right skills necessarily to do everything that needs to be done. And so then you get an opportunity to work with other people. And so you kind of build on that. And if you're lucky like I am, uh, you still get to work in the technical roles with uh, a lot of the other staff that, that are on your team. And that's very enjoyable for me. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I've had the, the the blessing to enjoy that same situation at, at my job. Uh, I'm a mechanical engineer, and I, I like to think that I'm pretty good when it comes to mechanical design, but we do a lot more than just mechanical design now. We're doing automation and motion control and s scanning and reverse engineering, and I, I 
don't know how to program. I don't know how to do reverse engineering. I'm terrible with electrical. So there are all these things that I can't do. And luckily, we have a team built around, you know, uh, in the company that everyone has their role and we can all do much bigger things than we could as individuals. Um, my uh, my aha moment there was uh, uh, I was uh, put in charge of managing a software project at one point in my career. It was wow. not a really big project, but uh, it, it was interesting. This was... Uh, this is embedded code stuff. It was, it was hex code, and so I can't, I can't do the work. I can't see the code. I can only talk to the people who do. <laughs> and so, forcing you not to make a technical contribution really, really does enhance that role and, and makes you appreciate uh, what everybody brings to the table when you put these teams together. Yeah. Oh, what an interesting experience that must have been. Not, not really having visibility into the technical side of things and just managing the project. Well, this is a good point to take just a real quick pause here and share with the listeners that teampipeline.us is where you can learn more about how we help medical device and other product engineering and manufacturing teams who need turnkey automated equipment or custom test fixtures to assemble, inspect, characterize, or perform verification or validation testing on their devices. We're speaking with Bill Atterbury today. And... uh, Bill, can you share with us maybe one or two um, of the either the most interesting or most challenging projects you worked on and, and maybe what you learned from those? Um, so we've obviously been doing medical products for quite a long time, and it, it varies the areas we get into. Um, it varies from uh, diagnostic equipment to surgical and other hospital equipment and uh, drug delivery devices, which... which um, uh, are, are kind of what I'm going to talk about. Drug delivery can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Um, for us, uh, lately, it's been uh, developing um, things like uh, insulin pens, reusable and disposable insulin pens, uh, and uh, auto injectors. We've been doing a lot of auto injectors lately. Um, so, uh, you know, the the one I'll talk about is uh, an in- insulin pen that we did. This is a little ways back, but I won't give any dates. Uh, and it was uh, a pen that had some electronics on it and some software and memory in- involved in it. And uh, so, it, you know, it was a really neat exposure to all the disciplines you need. And that's fairly typical this day and age because uh, almost everything is going to is or will be connected in some way, shape or form. And it'll have many of those aspects on it. So it gave you an appreciation for kind of some of the challenges that you run into integrating with uh, these other uh, disciplines. Uh, it's not just your game anymore. Uh, they have certain requirements and you have to help them solve theirs as well as solve your own. Uh, and, uh, you know, integrating the software and, and that whole process, it was interesting to see that as well. But it just gave me a big appreciation for all the things necessary to bring a product together to market. Excellent. How about design tools? I mean, we all use as design engineers, we all use CAD, so that's a pretty common one. But outside of that, what are some of your favorite design tools? So I, I have to, you know, the design tools have really made a great improvement over the years. And, and, and uh, you know, 40 years, I'll say the word 40, uh, <laughs> you get to see a lot of that. So, you know, when I was in college, I remember my first uh, finite element program, it was on an IBM 360 and it was down the punch carts, if you can imagine that. But, you know, since then, the advances we have in, in a lot of the tools we use have, have really made a lot of things possible. 
now. And you mentioned uh, CAD and, you know, CAD used to be just automated drawing, but now 3D CAD especially, and 3D CAD that then drives your design uh, where you're manufacturing off the 3D CAD and 3D CAD that enables you to do rapid prototypes, 3D printing, uh, and have something in your hands the next day to be able to evaluate. Uh, it, it really is just an amazing, uh, uh, an amazing change of the way things have, have played out. You asked me about, I'll answer your question now, uh, other tools that we use. Uh, obviously, there's, there's the standard engineering tools like uh, MathCAD, MATLAB, and some of those. Um, the ones we're taking more advantage of are some of the analytical tools. Uh, financial programs, uh, for example, ANSYS is, uh, is one company that makes uh, a bunch of those. And, uh, you know, you start with the static analyses, things that maybe you couldn't have done 20, 30 years ago. Uh, and then you add in uh, dynamic analyses and um, explicit dynamic, which is uh, in the medical world, uh, uh, drop and impact uh, types of evaluations. And it allows you to do some things that um, you, you couldn't have done even as short as 10 years ago. And my best example there is, uh, you know, I run into um, people, uh, many different people who say, you know, we've got this great medical device. Uh, we designed it. We tooled it. It's in, it's in, you know, now real material so that we can do our drop testing on it. Uh, and we kind of boxed in because we've got the package to find and we've done the human factors on it. And we drop it from one meter free fall test, ISO free fall test. And uh, something inside breaks. And it's like, oh, no, because it's a late stage, you know, issue that comes up. And, uh, you know, having the kind of tools um, to be able to analyze that uh, from CAD, basically, uh, to give you an insight into what's happening and, and more importantly, how to fix it, how to design around it is, is a very valuable tool. I imagine there are some people listening to this and thinking, oh, FEA, simulation, um, that sounds really hard. I've never done that before. That's going to take you know years to learn and really be able to do well. How much of a challenge is it to learn FEA and some of these uh, analytical simulation programs? Um, I think it's becoming like any other tool that an engineer has in his toolbox. Uh, you know, you just have a different, a different tool to use. And, and they're really not that hard. Uh, I, I mean, uh, it, it takes a while to get experienced with them, but uh, like a lot of the CAD tools, it's easy to pick up and do uh, certain problems uh, fairly easily. Um, you know, I, I don't see that as really being a limitation, and we no longer have to be analysts, dedicated analysts, to, to use these tools now. And quite frankly, I find the biggest value in them is putting them in the designer's hands where they can do design synthesis with them, design iterations, not just do an analysis and come up with a number, here's the number, but rather use that to influence what the design looks like to optimize the design uh, to make it do what they want it to do uh, in the real world. Yeah. Can you share, do you have any any favorite vendors that others listening might find useful? It could be a, like a hardware supplier or I don't know, maybe it's a 3D printing service bureau or, or something like that that you found particularly helpful in supporting product development efforts. Yeah, we work with a lot of different vendors, uh, so I'm not sure I can single one out. Um, uh, in particular, uh, you know, obviously uh, an engineer is looking to getting parts, a lot of times parts, parts, custom parts to spec uh, and getting them quickly. 
um, other services. Uh, obviously, we use some of those. We go outside for uh, uh, some rapid prototyping. Um, we almost always work with, well, we always work with uh, outside vendors that do uh, prototype tooling and uh, contract manufacturing. That's always an outsource um, uh, outsource uh, condition for us. Uh, and so I've, I guess I've, we work with quite a few of them, and a lot of times they're teamed with the client. The client selects them, and uh, I think just getting a chance to work with a lot of them has really helped our, you know, help us learn on how to make that whole process work smoothly. Yeah. I'll share one that uh, my team really likes. There's a, a company called FixtureWorks, and I'm not getting paid to th say this. Uh, they have no no idea who we are. We're just one of many, many customers for them. But they, they have all these really cool little mechanical widgets, these like quarter turn fasteners. That's probably what we use most often from them, uh, different knobs and, and things. But they're a really neat company. They have lots of just interesting mechanical solutions for fasteners and hardware and and things like that, kind of like McMaster, but much, much, much more specialized in, in what they offer. Um, what are some of your favorite materials to use for both low and, and high volume production? Uh, well, being in the medical industry, we work a lot with plastic parts uh, and uh, eventually get to a point where there are fairly high volumes uh, that, are, uh, that are made. So you can imagine those are multi-cavity tooling, a lot of injection molded parts, uh, other types of uh, processes as well. Um, uh, so we, we, uh, we, cer we certainly use those and the materials that are dedicated to the purpose, you know, the, uh, uh, I'll try to use generic names, uh, the, uh, the, the nylon, well, nylons, the Delrins, the, you know, the Teflons, uh, um, polyesters, uh, of course, polycarbonates, ABSs, things like that. Um, as far as smaller quantities go, you know, of course, everything we have to prototype first, uh, some of those materials, obviously, is whatever the, what's ever in the rapid prototyping machine today, because <laughs> if you want to part tomorrow, <laughs> it's best to pick that one. Yep. Um, we work with some rubber parts there, some elastomers. Um, we'll do machining for, for um, not only uh, prototype parts, but also test fixtures and things like that. And, and a lot of those are either plastic or aluminum or, you know, you know whatever, whatever we need that meets the, meets the bills. Yeah. If you guys are doing a bunch of test fixtures, you should check out the Mark Forged machines. Do you know those? Uh, I don't think so. Is that a uh, rapid prototype? Uh, yeah. It's a, it's okay. a FDM technology 3D okay. printer, but they put okay. they, they can put uh, continuous carbon fiber in them. Again, uh, no one's yeah. paying me to say this, but we use them. <laughs> we have a few of those machines in-house, and we use them all the time for test fixtures and jigs and equipment and things like that. And they're really just strong, chunky, blocky parts that are fantastic for that purpose. Yeah, I think that's been a great use of the rapid prototype machine is the test fixtures. And we do the same thing. They're very heavy, clunky things that uh, then can support our parts, both in during testing, but we also use them for small volume assembly, things like yeah. that. Uh, real handy. And it's a little bit different way of using the rapid prototype because uh, it's now it's directly a product, but it's right. it's very easy to make something very quick. And if I don't like what I got today, I can have a different one tomorrow. Yeah. We make a lot of these device holders to go in our, our equipment, right? All Every piece of equipment has to do something to a device, which means you have to hold the device and the equipment. And we used to pay, I don't know, $2,500 or $3,000 for a custom, you know, uh, aluminum machined holder that was nice and contoured to the profile of the device. And um, 
you take two or three weeks to get the part back. And, and now we just print it with these Mark Forged machines and it's like 500, 500 bucks and a day or maybe two if it's a big part. Uh, they're so valuable. I've really enjoyed using those. Um, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit here. And can you tell me what, what are a few of the most effective methods that you've found to mentor junior engineers and, and help them get up to speed you know, quickly to the point that they are significant contributors to the engineering team? Uh, well, first of all, any any sort of training, formal or informal, uh, that you can provide is is very helpful. Uh, um, as far as uh, the best kind of training, it's on the job. Uh, you know, you don't get any better than that. I can't, you know, train somebody for every specific situation that they're going to encounter. Uh, but if you've gone through it once or twice, uh, you know, and, and I kind of make it up as I go too sometimes. Uh, it, it, that's, that's probably the best training and, uh, but that takes, obviously <laughs> it takes a career to do in many cases. Uh, we also try to do a lot of, uh, internal training, uh, that we do. We put it on ourselves. Uh, you know, there's obviously outside sources you can go to, to get, uh, uh, training. But, uh, if you want it focused on you, the kind of work that your specific organization does, uh, it's 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 oftentimes best to come from within. Yeah. In 2013, you were named Battelle's Inventor of the Year. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, that's that was a, a career long goal for me, and uh, <laughs> uh, pretty rewarding. Um, uh, so, I, I don't you, you know you know first of all, it helps to have somebody really good write the application <laughs> who can uh, brag about you a little bit uh but uh so i've been a distinguished inventor for a while which means i guess i have a lot of patents and uh um had had continued to generate <clears throat> um, more patents for both our clients and internal and then <clears throat> every year Battelle uh and i one inventor of the year from each of its uh divisions uh, the national labs are now included as well so there's one each from the national labs that we manage or co-manage uh and uh you know basically it's a, a career long recognition for the creative work that's that's been done that's the being uh a distinguished inventor or the inventor of the year the inventor of the year distinguished inventor is a little bit easier in terms of definition uh it's 14 patents or more got it uh, that okay. you've gotten during during your uh, during your career so and then they nice put your plaque up on the wall with the others that are there. That must be very rewarding to see that. Oh yeah. Yeah, certainly. It's a, uh, it was rewarding for me when I got it and I can see the twinkle in people's eyes when they say, yeah, <laughs> just two more and I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to have my plaque on the wall. Hmm, very cool. So that, that's a very motivating uh, aspect of it. Yeah. What, what trends are you seeing in the industry these days? Uh, can you be more specific? Not really. <laughs> it's just a general question. Any trends that you are, and if, if you're not really seeing any, that's fine too. Got well, of other uh, here. one trend, unfortunately, has been the work from home uh, mm, trend that yeah. uh, a lot of us have, have been doing lately and uh, the tools you need to uh, obviously be effective and uh, maybe a different environment than what you are normally expecting. Uh, that, that's one. Um, I can talk about the, you know, we talked a little bit about the trends for tools and uh, kind of some of the computer-based uh, uh, tools that uh, have really provided a lot of things. In some cases, you couldn't have done before. Yeah. In many cases, it makes it a lot more efficient. 
Yeah. And I am always encouraged to see different ways that those uh, um, those skills can be can be applied to your work. You know, there's very creative ways to apply it. Uh, as far as the medical industry goes, you know, we're seeing a lot of trends there too. You know, and the connected trend is one. Putting, we're seeing uh, in in my world uh, a, a lot more um, monoclonal antibodies, which all require devices to get them into your bodies. And uh, kind of explosion in there, and uh, yeah, that also means uh, higher viscosity uh, types of drugs, and so that's kind of generated uh, a lot of interest in I'll call it on-body injectors, and so there's a lot of trends that are kind of towards oh, towards on-body injectors that we have not seen in the past uh, beyond these, beyond insulin pumps. Devices that just they they stay on the body for you know some period of time, days, weeks, yeah. months. Oh yeah, yeah, the, the two. Good examples are insulin pumps that's, that uh, either are on or attached with the tube set to the body and and uh, how they've now uh, are closed loop systems with uh, glucose meters. And so that really makes managing that disease uh, uh, much easier and much more effective. Uh, but we're also seeing a lot of trends in terms of, uh, I'll call them bolus injectors or uh, drugs that have to be delivered over long time periods. And it would just come in a, uh, called a small patch pump with an adhesive back and you'd stick it on your body and over a period of time it would deliver the drug. Really? Is there like a small needle that? Either a needle or a cannula that's typically used. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, there is one in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some people are needle, needle phobic, so they don't really want to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> but... sure. Okay. Well, I, I'm going to put you on the spot just a little bit. And if you can't think of an answer to this, that's totally fine. We'll just move on. But can you think of a time when you wanted to give up because something was just too hard or too stressful or you you couldn't figure it out and you just wanted to throw in the towel and say, forget this, I'm done with it, I'm moving on, but you didn't. And you overcame the problem and, and kind of what, what did you take away from that experience? Well, the funny part about that story, the way you teed it up for me, was uh, that I look back on those times now and and those were the best times because <laughs> uh, you're faced with a very challenging problem. And, and not every problem has a technical solution that comes to you in the middle of the night. Sometimes, you know, uh, they're programmatic or it just takes a whole different way of thinking about it, a whole different uh, method of approach. Uh, but you look back on those times, you say, yeah, that was, you know, figuring that out was, yeah, that was fun. That was challenging. It wasn't rote. It wasn't uh, boring it was uh it was it was really a neat problem it was a fun problem to solve and so uh you know now i think of uh, the situations and i kind of think about well yeah good times so you know <laughs> we'll figure it out we'll get through it um you know a lot of times i don't have the answer but uh i i tell our clients i tell them the people i work with you know i don't have an answer to this one but uh the 40 times in the past that this pro this type of problem has been been presented to me, we figured out a pretty good solution to it. And I know we'll get through this one too. That's great. I love that attitude. Yeah, it's interesting that sometimes the in the thick of it, right, these grueling experiences, you just want to find a way out. But then looking back, these are some of the the sweet memories that we carry around with us and, and look back on fondly even. Yeah, when we're uh, we're down down in our lab testing, uh, you know, uh, the, the fun part is when you get failures, <laughs> be honest with you, early stage, I'll call it early stage design and you're, you know, maybe testing out new concepts or different approaches. And, uh, you know, I always tell the people, well, you know, you got a problem, you just got to go ask the parts, 
got to go ask the right questions, but go down to the lab and ask the parts what the problem is. And if you put together the right test or the right uh, evaluation, uh, oftentimes the parts will reveal what, uh, what the issue is. That's a really interesting way of framing it. Ask the parts what the problem is. Can, can you elaborate on that just a little bit more? So if you run into a problem, uh, there's usually a test that you can run or an evaluation that you can perform or an analysis. And in this case, I'm talking about, uh, you know, we do a fair amount of materials analysis. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of techniques there that you can use that will uh, divulge maybe certain things that uh, will help you solve your problem. Uh, you can go from anywhere from, you know, running a, a DSC, a differential scan and calorimeter to understand, you know, what the constituents are in the material that you're working to, um, to, uh, you know, looking at the surface, doing some surface electron microscope work and finding out if there's residues. Usually the mm. answer is there. You just got to ask the right questions to get it. That's great. That's great. Well, um, one more question for you, and then we'll wrap this up. What are some of the biggest challenges that you run into at work? Well, we always have the challenge of um, trying to obviously, uh, uh, you know, uh, solve a problem in an efficient manner, uh, uh, both time and obviously cost. And, and and as you know, in the medical world, schedule is, schedule is always king, whether it's a you know, a big client or a little client, uh, you know, you really got to uh, meet the schedule. So, um, you know, I, I guess doing things in an, in an efficient manner is always a challenge and uh, getting everybody to walk in step, you know, with a common understanding is, is sometimes a challenge. Um, we we've, are able to address a lot of those things a lot of times, uh, with with just some of the information that we communicate and how we communicate it, and that's that's kind of another challenge that we have. Uh, but once you do that, uh, it, it seems like it goes a lot smoother. Communication, a lot of answers always find their way back to effective communication. <laughs> well, Bill, this has been delightful. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Um, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, so you can find me there. That's probably the easiest way. Uh, uh, but you're also welcome to email me directly if you want to. It's Atterbury, my last name, A-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-Y, at Battelle.org. We are an org, and it's spelled B-A-T-T-E-L-L-E. So you can reach me that way, too. Terrific. Thank you. Is there anything else that we should have talked about that we haven't? I, I don't think so. I think we covered a lot of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Terrific. Well, Bill, thank you again. Okay. Good talking with you, Aaron. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.